You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, TC. How are you doing today? Good, good, good. Sorry, I'm a fan of congregation participation, so it tends to happen. Uh, I would like to invite you to grab your Bibles, whether it is a physical Bible on your phone, and join us as we read from Matthew 1, verses 18 to, because I forget, uh, to 25. And this is a great way that we can participate as well, as just reading along. I'll read it out loud. You guys read along in your heads. But I would invite you all, uh, out of respect to the divine word that God has given to us, to stand if you are able to, as we read this passage. So starting at Matthew, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Jesus woke up, sorry, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of God to us today. You may be seated. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Tyler. Uh, I will I say just before I jump into the message, um, we will have these little cards as reminders to you, but also if you want to invite someone else to our, our Christmas Eve service, uh, on your way out, the ushers will be handing those out to you. If you're going to keep it to yourself or you're going to throw it in the garbage or just leave it on your own fridge, just take one. If you might be handing it out to other people, grab uh, t- two or three or three or four, depending on, on how, how committed you are. Um, I, uh, I love good books. I love uh, good movies. One of, the, one of the styles of books and movies I like is when you have the same story going on, but you have it happening from several, several different angles. And then every once in a while, there's a point in the story where they kind of crisscross and they, they meet each other. So one of the movies that I've liked is called Van, uh, Vantage Point. And I don't know whether any of you have seen that. It's a 2008. It's, it's a pretty old movie now. Um, but it's the same kind of idea in that um, an attempt on the president of the United States to assassinate the president of the United States has happened. And uh, five or six, there's five or six different playouts of the story that each kind of crisscross. 
Well, during this Advent season, as we've been looking at these different stories in this series called Angels We Have Heard, um, this, this story of Advent, of this, this long waiting for the Messiah, for God to move in a certain, certain way, we see they, in some ways they seem disconnected, but they all come together at one point, sometimes through people. But we see each one of them comes together with this phrase, do not be afraid. Every episode of an angel appearing in these Christmas stories says, do not be afraid. It's the ongoing uh, uh, phrase, uh, message of the angels to different characters in the Christmas story. So Luke 1, 13, the angel says to Zechariah, soon to be the father of John, who would be John the Baptist, do not be afraid. Luke 1, 30, when Mary is approached by the angel Gabriel, he says, do not be afraid. Next week, Pastor Sam will be here talking about the shepherds and the angels appearing to the shepherds. And they say in Luke 2, 10, do not be afraid. It's as if the angels can't get it in their heads when, <laughs> when an angelic being shows up. It's pretty intense. When an angel who has been in the presence of God's holiness and majesty shows up in our darkness, it tends to freak us out a little bit. And it probably should. But it's as if they, they don't get Do not be afraid. And he cries it out to Joseph here as well. Don't be afraid because God is at work in the darkness. He's at work in the darkness of Israel, Zechariah, Mary, the shepherds, Joseph. That is the message of Advent. The message of God's arrival, the, the coming, specifically the coming of Jesus. And it's also how we learn, we can learn, how we ought to face this season of Advent. Not just this season right now leading us to Christmas, but this season in the history of mankind as we await the second coming of Christ when we will all sing, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. And we can learn a few things of what it means to walk through Advent uh, in this story. First thing is we kind of learn the chaos of Advent. I don't know if you, you realize this, but when Jesus shows up, he always tends to bring a little bit of crisis with him. He's brought it into the life of Mary and Joseph. Uh, for many of us sitting here, when we said yes to Jesus and said, you are Lord of my life, it brought some chaos into our lives because it pushed up against maybe what we thought our life was going to look like. It pushed up maybe against friends and work. Historically, that's pretty accurate. When Jesus shows up, there's often some chaos and some, some crisis. There's drastic shifts have to happen in our hearts and minds. Joseph's story is a story of, of putting the pieces together bit by bit by, by trusting God in the midst of uncertainty, which seems like real chaos if this happened to any of us. But we see a quiet humility in Joseph that I think we could learn from. There's a quiet humility. Have you ever noticed that nowhere in, in Scripture is our Joseph, Joseph never says anything. No, no words of Joseph are recorded. We record that he hears, and, we record, and it's recorded that he acts. He listens, and he does. There's a quiet humility to him. There's, there's no, no words. It's just listening and acting. There are a few things I think we need to understand when, when reading a story like this. We're, as we know, we're separated by over 2,000 years, by, by culture, by, by language. And I think it's important for us to understand the predicament that Joseph finds himself in. It says in, in verse 18, they were pledged to be married. Some of your Bibles might say they were betrothed, they were engaged. In 19, it says that Joseph was Mary's faithful 
husband. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense. They're just betrothed or, or engaged. So a few things we need to understand. In first century Palestine, romance played zero role in marriage. <laughs> Aw. I don't care what, what movies you've seen. <laughs> there, there were a few stages of, of being married in, in first century Palestine, specifically in a Jewish community. First, the two fathers of the families uh, would get together if they believed that their two, two children would be a good match. Maybe they would look at, at the wealth in the family. They would look like, is it a secure family, a good family, a religious family? And they would have a conversation and decide. They would decide to engage the couples. You are now engaged. No, no, you're engaged. Finding the one was not a concept. There were no right swipes. It was just, dad said I'm marrying this person. Which is good news. You get to skip all that dating stuff. Your parents don't need to worry that their child will make the wrong choice. So Lelani and I made this decision years ago when my son, who is now 19, um, was just a child. We decided who he would marry, and we made an arrangement. I mean, we have a pretty important conversation to have with him yet that he doesn't know about. And he's here, so. And we should probably have a conversation with Emma, his girlfriend, too. We haven't covered that with her. Anyway, but it doesn't matter. We just thought it would be easier on everyone involved. But that's how it would happen. The, the fathers would decide. Second, years after the engagement was agreed upon by the parents, the two would be betrothed, probably while they were teenagers. This was the closest part to being married. The next step was marriage, and the, the betrothal was about a year. Now, if you were engaged that whole, that whole time between being a baby <laughs> and it being agreed upon before you were betrothed for that last year, and you decided she's just not that into you, you could call it off. But once you are betrothed, you were considered husband and wife. You weren't living together. There was no sexual relationship. But you were considered, it was as important and, and legal as being a married couple. So that meant in that year of betrothal, if you were going to break it off, there was an actual legal divorce that needed to take place. Now, if you and I, in our modern world, that is kind of has a, an anything-goes culture. If we can imagine the shame that could be evolved, the chaos, the anger, the hurt that could be evolved in that kind of situation, imagine what it would mean to an anything-does-not-go-abide-by-God's-rules kind of culture. What that must have been like for Joseph. Imagine walking in his shoes, confused, angry, humiliated. This is a scandal. Now, let me read from verses 18 to 19 one more time, taking out the four words that put us all at peace when we read it. Because this is how Joseph and this is how his community would have, would have saw the story. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. The important words there are, this was of the Holy Spirit. You and I know that. Joseph didn't know that. The community didn't know that. So far, that's the only information Joseph has. But he has this kind of silent desire to honor both God's law and protect Mary, even as he, even as he assumes that she's been unfaithful. He must have a humility and a perspective that comes from Probably the wisdom of the Hebrew scriptures. I, I, I was trying to imagine this week what kind of scripture Joseph might have been repeating to himself to kind of deal with this situation. I thought of, of Micah 6. 
Do we have that here? Micah 6, 8. He, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I thought maybe Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 might have been in his mind. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Joseph, if you just lean on your own understanding, this is going to go south very quickly. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Before Joseph knew the whole story, he must have been repeating these things in his mind. He, he wants to be law-abiding, but he also wants to be merciful. It's a nice mix. It's not a mix we see a lot these days. He is a moral man who stands for righteousness, but he's also merciful. That's a rare combination these days. So we see not only this humility in Joseph, not unrelated, we also see this expectancy of Advent. There's this expectancy in Joseph. As he listens to the angel, it lands on, on good soil because his heart and mind must have been prepared for this story. I, I can't imagine how many times Mary must have practiced the conversation she was going to have with Joseph. Imagine knowing what Mary knows and having to say, okay, how is this, how is this uh, conversation going to go down? <clears throat> I don't know how many times she went over it, wrote it down, practiced it. Uh, hey, Joseph, I have to talk to you about something. And Joseph going, oh, yeah, you just got back from visiting Elizabeth. Yeah, you heard about Elizabeth, right? You heard that she got, even though she's totally too old to, get, to have a baby, that she's actually pregnant now? Yeah, that's miraculous. Yes, miraculous, Joseph. I want you to hold on to that idea for a moment because there's a bit more going on. So just remember, that's miraculous. That's wonderful what God is doing. Keep that in mind as I tell you this. And perhaps still trying to decide what to do as a righteous man after having a hard time maybe falling asleep after hearing this story from Mary and, 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 and battling with it and wrestling with it, the angel shows up in a dream to Joseph. And again, if we don't understand some of this language, we miss some important things. The angel calls him Joseph, son of David. Son of David is not a title that just gets thrown around in Scripture. Joseph, son of of David. To call him son of David, the angel was preparing Joseph for something big. Not a title just thrown around. Joseph's dad was a man named Jacob. We see that in verse 16. But to call Joseph son of David was immediately to say, Joseph, God's big story is moving here. This, this big narrative that's been going on for a hundred years, for a thousand years, is, going, is about to continue. I want to make sure you connect the dots here, Joseph. The very phrase, son of David, was to call attention that God was about to move. It was code language for the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Something's going to happen. There's going to be a new chapter written about the promised Savior of Israel and the promised Savior of all nations. The Messiah that would bring... Uh, bring um, that would come from, from, the king, from King David in Israel, the great, the great venerated king of Israel. There was always promises, always the prophets were talking about uh, uh, the branch of David, that a descendant of David was going to come and rule eternally. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That was a way of talking about a family tree. A king who would reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And Jeremiah 33 says, In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. The minute the angel says, Son of David, 
Well, as if he wasn't paying attention already when an angel showed up. But the fact that he said son of David would have perked Joseph's ears. It's a hint of what's coming. It's a reminder. Joseph, remember how you're a descendant of David? Also, the other thing that would have excited Joseph was to hear that what's going on with Mary is a move of the Holy Spirit, of the Almighty. Whenever Jews heard about God's Spirit doing something, it meant that God's story was moving forward, that another chapter was about to happen. When the prophets were, were filled with the Spirit to prophesy, whenever the Spirit is, enters into the story, God is about to write a new chapter. And so Joseph sees himself on the cusp of, of God about to move in a, in a powerful way in his, in his ancient promises. So Joseph, marry Mary. Marry Mary. Joseph, marry Mary and be Mary. Because yes, Mary has been chosen, but so have you. You are son. You are a son of David. You are going to be father of the son of the living, active God. Because Joseph, this boy, is the answer, the satisfaction you're waiting for, what your nation is waiting for, what the world is waiting for. We sing this every year. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. But Advent is here, and with that, the joy of man's desiring. And so in this story, we also see, lastly, this welcoming language of Advent. We, we, we've reflected on some of, the, of some, some of the cultural stuff and the language that's being used. There's a little more here. But there's such a beautiful, welcoming language to Advent. The names of Jesus are significant, and they, they mean something for you and I. The, the names that the angel proclaims about Jesus, they're not random. They're a proclamation that the wait is over. Not just for Israel, not just for Joseph and Mary. They ought to proclaim to you and I. That your search for belonging, your search for family, the desire of your very heart is answered in this person, Jesus the Christ. The names of Jesus, the fulfillment of Jesus, the action of naming Jesus are all important. So two more cultural points here to help us unpack this. First, in, in the Jewish culture of the first century Palestine, the father had the sole right to name his child. Nobody else had that right. The right to name always had significance. It showed who you belonged to and who you answered to. Think of the person of Jesus. It showed you who you belonged to and who you answered to. Secondly, the name given is also meant to tell you something about the child. We see this throughout Scripture when names are given and names change. It's meant to tell you something about who you are in God's eyes and that God wants to do something through you. So we see this in the Old Testament. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. And you'll notice the angel doesn't come up to Joseph and say, what do you think, Joseph? What should we name him? <laughs> doesn't come up with Dr. Spock's book of names. He goes, what do you think of Dylan? No, that's not what he does. He says his name will be Jesus. The reason God does not let Joseph and Mary name his child is because they are not meant to think they have ultimate authority over this child. They are surrogates for Jesus. Today, we have the right to name. We can name our children whatever we want, and it's evident. <laughs> if you look at some of the names around. Um, often today, we might name our children after something we like. So really, we're imposing kind of ourselves on our kids. So if we have hobbies, sometimes we'll name kids after hobbies. I once met a guy named Jeep. I thought that was cruel. Uh, I have a, a very good friend. He'll probably listen to this message. He has children named after dinosaurs, Tyron and Trice. 
Shout out to Tyron and Trice if you listen. If you're a gardener, you might name your kids Iris or Rose. If you're a musician, Hendrix or Reed. Think about it. If you like cars, you might name your child Cooper or Lincoln. If you like Shakespeare and cars, you might name your child Portia. Not a, not a Shakespeare crowd? Okay. But, but in those cases, we, we're not really thinking that the name is imposing a destiny. We just think it's neat. We think it's a cool name. Biblical names worked in the opposite direction. They were meant to declare something that was going to happen. They were meant to give you purpose towards that which way you would become or you would aim towards. Or they would say something about, about God, what God had called you to. And people were meant to pay attention to other people's names and keep an eye on them because it was teaching you about what God they served and how they wanted to serve him. That's why in, in, um, in the book of Daniel, the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are all changed names because they were all names that reflected the God they served, changed to the names after pagan gods that they were, they were ordered to serve. The angel says, you should call his name Jesus. Why? Because that is his life's work. To save. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus, some of you might know, is a Hellenized or Greekized version of Joshua from the Old Testament. Yeshua, which is the character, the, the man who after Moses brought the people of Israel into the promised land. He delivered the promises given to the children of Israel. That is Jesus' identity. He is a deliverer of people. Today we have a culture that is stuck on the question of who am I? Who am I? And we, we live in anxiety over that question. It occupies our lives. It's at the root of a lot of public friction. Who am I? What does it mean to be authentic to me? We don't see that in Jesus. Jesus has a very firm understanding of who who he is and who he belongs to. There's a place in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 36. The disciples come to Jesus. He's spending time alone, praying, which was his practice. And all his disciples come around him and they say, hey, Jesus, there's a crowd here and they're just waiting for you to talk to them. In, to, in this day and age, that would be right on. Let's get in there. Let's get some pictures. Let's get some hashtags and let's get it on social media. Jesus understood his purpose. He said, nope, I have to go from village to village and tell them about the kingdom of God. That is why I came, he said. He understood his purpose. Throughout the ministry of, of Jesus, several times his disciples, his friends come to him and they say, do not go to Jerusalem. And in Luke 9, 51, he says that he knew his purpose. He went, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus knew what he was all about. He had a strong sense of identity. He knew who he was because he knew who had named him. If we want to know who we are, we need to stop asking who I am and start asking whose am I. That will answer, well, that clicked with some of you, all right. <laughs> oh, well. That will answer the question, who am I? See, because if you decide you're going to name yourself, if you're going to decide how you're going to be labeled, we're going to try things like work. And we're going to make a name for ourselves. It's even the language we use. I'm going to make a name for myself through work. But what actually happens is then our work names us. It rules us because whoever names you has authority over you. 
If we decide, oh, I'm going to name myself through relationships, I'm going to be known by being in relationship, or maybe I'm going to be known by not being in a relationship, what really happens is that ends up ruling us. It rules us because we've allowed it to have authority over us. Whatever you use to name yourself, to make a name for yourself, to find an, uh, your identity, it becomes your authority. If you want to know who you are, you first have to ask yourself, whose am I? See, the, inv- the invitation of Advent is to step out of the darkness and the burden of self-promotion and self-creation and declare a light has dawned and that light is shining on me and that light is giving me a new name and it's giving me a new identity. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I, I, think, I was thinking of that this verse this week and thinking of those boys at Ensenada who step in there feeling lost and ignored and unloved and being told that they're seen and loved by God. They're given a new identity. They are smiling and they are laughing and they are playing because the truth of Advent is being shed on their lives and it's changing their outlook. It's changing their identity. The world needs this. John loved this truth. Later on in a letter he writes in 1 John, He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Paul writes, because, St. Paul writes, because of this advent of God, because of this coming of Christ in Ephesians 2.13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In 2.19 to 22, he says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. You're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. When we, when we receive Jesus as our savior, as, as when we live out his name, when we look to him as our deliverer, when, when we recognize that Jesus is the son of the living God, a name chosen by the father, He welcomes us into the family. We are adopted into the family of God and you get God's family name placed on you. And unless we let him name us, we will never find out who we are. We have a world running around trying to name themselves. We've we've taken everything away from our world of what fundamentally gives us identity and meaning and purpose and we put the heavy burden on every individual to come up with their own identity. If we want to know who we are, we need to know whose we are. And ultimately that takes fear away. It takes away er- error and, and <laughs> our error and our pining. What takes that away is knowing who we are because we know whose we are. That This is what Advent does for us, what the coming of Jesus does for us. This is why we can hear the angels when they say, do not be afraid. He's not coming with a hammer. <laughs> In the chaos of waiting with, with all our questions like, like Joseph had, it, it gives us the perspective to live humbly and with trust and in our, in our desire for the expectation, for the waiting, we see ourselves in the great narrative of God. 
in, in speaking in a language that tells us we are seen and loved and belong and that, that God is still on the move. Advent declares that we do not need to be afraid. And so however you come here this morning, however you've tried to build your identity in the past, this week at work, this week with friends, this week with what you've read, this week with what you've accomplished, that will become your authority. And as I've said before, anytime we try to find identity or work towards an identity outside of the identity freely given us by Christ, it's like a treadmill with no off switch. We will continue to run, continue to run, continue to run until we allow Jesus to pull the plug out of the wall and say, stop running. You, there's nothing you need to earn. So it, it's my prayer during these, these last few weeks of Advent that you would let the truth of a God who ripped open the skies and stepped into our world, stepped into human history, you will allow that to, to blanket over you. You would see in it uh, an end to your search for an identity. That you would allow the king of all creation who sent his son to live and die and be resurrected for your sake. That you would find in him your purest, most fundamental identity. He is who you belong to. And if that is not you yet, I want to invite you this morning. This might be your time after the service while I'm standing up here with the prayer teams up here to come up at the front and say, I need to find my identity in Christ. And I want to do that right now. I want to drop everything else and find my identity solely in him. Maybe you need to be reminded of that. You've made that decision years ago. And so of course he's Lord of my life. But you've found these other paths. You've been, you've been drawn into these other arguments and ideologies that say, no, no, you're not, you don't have an identity until you create it yourself. The cross abolishes all of that. When Jesus burst out of the grave, when he was resurrected, he tore all of that apart. That's the invitation of Advent. Let's pray. God, this morning, some of us today, maybe over these weeks, maybe even especially because of this season, we feel, we feel fear. Some of us maybe feel just tired. There's a way that this season can kind of highlight loneliness. And so God, I pray that the truth of Advent, the truth of a God who steps into our timeline, the truth of a God who wants to give us a name, a name that says you belong, a name that says you are loved, I pray that that would rule over us. And we would accept that. We would embrace that truth. I pray that you would remind us of the truth of Advent this morning, that, that chaos and, and fear will not have the final word, that darkness will not have the final word, that, that the light that has shone in the darkness will never be snuffed out. That through the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus, we can have confidence that the darkness is on its way out. So God, may we have the humility, may we have the mercy of Joseph, may we, may we live with expectancy and, and an excitement that you are on the move even when we can't see it. And may we be reminded that we need not live in fear. You have given us a new name built on the name of Jesus who was and is and is to come and we celebrate him in this season. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.